Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, Seb. Hello, Glenn. How's it going over there? Yeah, it's going good. It's, it's, I was, it, the sun is out, and it is cold. Mm. The yeah, is the out. sun is not out here. It is pouring rain all up and down the East Coast. Storms everywhere here on uh, this mid-January day. Mm. But um, yeah, we had an interesting episode today. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of big ideas and, um, you know, kind of tapping into some really deep parts of people's experiences as well. So uh, we hope people will find it interesting. Yeah, because we often talk about the spirit of motivation. And today mm. we're really exploring the relationship between spirituality and what most people will recognize as the religious aspects of human existence and how and if they influence or are influenced by motivational interviewing. So today we, we met with Sky Kirshner and I'm just wondering, what did you take away from the conversation? Well, so Sky is a really interesting guy and, and he wears many professional hats and one of them is as a pastoral counselor. And, you know, honestly, for me, uh, Pastoral care and pastoral counseling is a field that I loosely familiar with working in a hospital setting where we have a number of pastoral counselors that work throughout the hospital system. But I never really sat down with any of them and really kind of talked about what it is that they do. And in particular, the role that spirituality or religion plays in the work that they uh, offer to people. Some clients have asked me before what a chaplain in the hospital does or what a pastoral counselor does. And, you know, their questions were things like, do they just preach at you? And I would imagine that perhaps there are some that take that as their role. But but Sky helped, helped me understand in a much more in-depth way of what it means to be a pastoral counselor, at least, again, from his perspective. But uh, not just what the job is, but then also just how one can integrate conversations about spirituality into other conversations about an illness or about mm. drug and alcohol use or whatever it might be. Mm. So, um, you know, it just, it, I guess I found it, I found a more kind of practical takeaway for me and just a better understanding of, of how, how that's done. Yeah. Even that piece where he talked about, when we think ourselves as practitioners and motivational practitioners, when we're looking, we're looking to support an individual to look at the support network that they have, and that outside of the, the outside of the therapy room and how they might be able to tap into that on their recovery journeys. He talked about religion and he talked about spirituality. That you know, how often do we invite the person to to explore? You know, where does God fit in, or where does religion fit in, where does prayer fit in? for you in your potential recovery journey. And it's it's back to, you know, how comfortable we as individuals are to ask someone about the spiritual dimension of who they are and explore that without having to know too much about whatever religion or whatever sect or whatever spiritual identification that they have. It's looks just looking at how does this resource you and support you. And I, and I guess one of the things I was struck by was, again, that limited understanding of what pastoral counseling was all about what struck me was just how broad-minded how broad-ranged uh the influences is that that sky 
brought to the conversation, open to the wisdom of all the great texts, the mystics, the avatars, and the spiritual leaders of our world, and and very significantly how they how they integrate and complement and reinforce the practice of motivational living. Yeah, I mean, Sky really drew upon uh, a number of backgrounds and beliefs and and origin stories and um, poets and authors and mm. uh, you know, so we we. I think we both found ourselves quite interested in where Sky would go next in mm. in uh, one of his responses to us, and, and certainly we hope that uh, that others will uh, will also find it to be as interesting as we did. Yeah, so let's listen to the episode. Hi, Sky. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. As we do with all our guests at the beginning of the podcast, is we just ask them the question: Tell us a bit about yourself and particularly about your relationship and journey into motivational interview. Thanks, Glenn. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think my journey into motivational interviewing began like probably many folks um, experiencing the lousiness of some conversations growing up, you know, getting pushed around in conversations, people giving unsolicited advice, unfriendly advice with or without stigma. Uh, attached to it. And uh, so as a, as a counselor and as a pastoral counselor, um, you know, I was certainly drawn to counseling because of that idea of figuring out what's happening in conversations and how can conversations go better. Uh, I, I think for me, one of, one of my main values uh, would be acceptance both, you know, receiving acceptance and giving acceptance and how, um, how that happens in conversation. So I think one of my early, early movements into it was through uh, something called nonviolent communication. And um, they have a, a certain way of thinking about what's happening in conversations and either giving empathy or receiving empathy. And, um, uh, Somewhere along the line, I was directing a counseling center here in Charleston, West Virginia, and uh, we came across a, a great guy, uh, Jack Stringfellow. Jack was a member of the Mint, which is the uh, Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. He was the only one in West Virginia. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I thought I knew it, what it was just based on the title. So, oh, yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, kind of hanging around with with Jack, yeah, we we hit it off, and we ended up working together. And uh, Jack was a was a great trainer, and at the same time, not very entrepreneurial. He uh, he, you know, if people invited him to do a workshop, he would do it. And uh, I thought, boy, this is something that that we need here in West Virginia. As, as you all may know, West Virginia has the highest opioid fentanyl overdose death rate in the country of the United States, maybe in the world. Up until COVID, we were losing three people a day to overdose deaths. And since COVID, it's gone up to four a day with with the introduction of fentanyl. So we have a huge need here. So Jack and I were talking, I said, look, I, I'll, I, 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 I can market this thing if, if you're willing to be the trainer. And he said, sure. And uh, so we started doing workshops uh, all over the state and I would go with him to support him. And uh, I went to probably 150 workshops with him and uh, just kind of through osmosis started taking this thing in. And then 
something happened. Jack, uh, Jack had a massive stroke. This is about seven or eight years ago. He had a massive stroke and died. And we had all of these workshops, two-day workshops planned all throughout the state. And they were already scheduled. We, they, they were coming up. And uh, I sort of had this battlefield commission where I stepped into the role of the, of the trainer and, um, you know, just sort of got into it that way. So, um, uh, and, you know, part of my carrying on Jack's legacy was I, I wanted to become a member of the Mint uh, sort of in his honor. And uh, I did that uh, a couple of years ago in Maldehyde, and um, maybe that was 2018. And I'm very, you know, I continue to be really interested uh, in what happens in conversations, what works, what doesn't work. As, as you all may know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the sort of self-proclaimed curator of the, uh, the motivational interviewing uh, video gumbo library. I love uh, videos. I love being able to teach with, with all of us having the same data. So, um, you know, if you can watch a three minute conversation and then everybody has their different perspective of, of what's going on in that conversation. So I, I love motivational interviewing. I love teaching motivational interviewing because it, it seems like a continuous process of discovery. You know, we, we all have, I, I think, you know, kind of an intuitive or a learned sense of what helps us, what doesn't help us, what kind of conversations work for us, what don't. So that's, uh, that's kind of how I, how I came to this. Uh, yeah, so quite a story there from early experiences of receiving stigma and not being accepted to perhaps that informing your values development and seeking experiences and approaches that align better with that the on, on the ground serious need there in West Virginia, as well as this uh, friendship and partnership that unfortunately ended with, uh, with Jack's passing a few years ago. Yeah, no, just it, these stories that we hear from all our guests are always uh, interesting to kind of get behind the curtain a bit and to learn about you all as you yeah. are generous with us and, and share your time. If I were to take a little bit of a deeper dive, you know, it, it, it really goes to the fact that I'm an only child and uh, both my parents were alcoholic and having the experience of trying all sorts of different things and eventually just resigning myself to, to them being the way they, they were. My father died of uh, lung cancer related to drinking and smoking uh, when I was 22 and um, and I was a hospital chaplain at the time and, you know, learning, <laughs> learning the, uh, the Johnson intervention model that was back in 1985. Um, and, uh, you know, just having these really unfortunate conversations with people that I was, uh, you know, very close to, but having very conflicted relationships with. So I think that's a, an important part of the, the, the heart of why I wanted to get into this and, and what excites me about it to, to, to be able to have conversations with people who are hurting themselves or to teach others how to have conversations with their loved ones uh, that don't involve trying to push them around or bully them around in, in, an, in an ineffective way that just leaves people uh, feeling isolated and ashamed. This was just thrilling to me. 
So thank you for letting me include that layer, Sebastian. Uh, I think you had a question queued up there. Well, I, it was actually kind of a detour from the from your personal story because you mentioned the video gumbo, which is a resource that some of us in the motivational interviewing network trainers will be familiar with, but others may not. And could could you maybe you know brief detour about your story just to share a bit what it is and if it's publicly available, how can people access it? Um, it's not publicly available. It's one of the, the, the resources for the Mint. Although these days on YouTube, if you just put in motivational interviewing, uh, you can um, all sorts of things will come up. I roll out, I, I have a blog and also I, I think on the Facebook page, uh, I, I try to roll out a video from time to time. We have about 200 videos and some of them are straight up demonstrations and motivational interviewing. Others are just quirky things like the, uh, the, the, the one that's the most used would be, uh, it's not about the nail. So those kinds of you, you know, movies, uh, series, um, the, the, there are all these conversations that people are having and, and some of them work very well. For example, in the, in the TV show, Ted Lasso, so many apologies, good apologies happen in that show where people are, are feeling remorse and they, they repair and they repair well. And, and so we, we have in media, um, you know, so many examples of conversations that have gone bad, like TikTok air, airport conversations, uh, and then conversations that, that just are going so well. And uh, I'm so grateful for, for Stephen Rolnick and Bill Miller, who, you know, had the, the thought, why don't we study these conversations and figure out what it is that's going well with them? And, and I think that's, that's in essence what motivational interviewing is. It's, it's, that, it's that sense of what can we understand about how a conversation is leading people to greater levels of happiness or self-compassion or compassion towards others? So that's what the video gumbo is, and I'd be glad to uh, give folks a uh, connection to me for that uh, at the end. Thank you for that. And I think it's, it's that idea of the compassion, the, the care for other people, the desire for other people to be well, is what's the sound in the background of what it is you've been describing so far, Sky, and about mm -hmm. your own sensitivity to the sound that interrupts that peace, that the sound that interrupts that individual's experience of well-being or contentedness, whether it is the alcoholism in the family or just the way somebody speaks to us or the tone of their voice that brings fear or, or, or apprehension into the experience. And it sounds like that was one of the things that was driving you that looking for how do I get this balance? How do I get this balance, particularly in, in my role? Because you've introduced to us that, that you were that you have a pastoral role as a pastor. And and, and I wonder, can you tell us a bit more about that? Is because that's that's an interesting slant and I, it's the piece that we're hoping to explore with you today is that idea of, you know, spirituality and motivational interviewing, the influence of each on the other. Yeah. So pastoral counseling sort of came out of uh, chaplaincy and actually it has, has ancient roots. You, you know, you, you could say, and I, I think you and I have talked about this, Glenn, that, that, that the whole idea of counseling in Western culture is partially connected to the idea that confession is good for the soul. Uh, you know, confession became ritualized in 
some religious traditions, so for example, in the Christian Catholic tradition, where you've got very ritualized form of confession. But, you know, the idea of talking one-on-one with somebody in an intimate way, you know, you could say bearing your soul, but, but being open with your heart with someone. And these are kind of the, the conversations that I was drawn to um, in chaplaincy work. And by chaplaincy, I, uh, you know, I, the, this is a very interfaith this idea of conversation being helpful to people is common across all religious traditions. And, and I think probably most or all spiritual traditions and practices, the idea of bringing honesty to yourself, bringing honesty to a conversation, whether the conversation is within yourself or the conversation is with a higher power, however you think of that, or a deeper power. Uh, sometimes I think about a deeper power rather than a higher power. But uh, just just how are these relationships nurtured? And to go back to to what you were saying in terms of the pain gland, yeah, you know, in that in Buddhism we have this idea of uh, of suffering, you know, and that, that suffering is uh, connected to attachment, you know, desire and then attachment, and we get attached to our thoughts, we get attached to our perspectives in the world, we get attached to our beliefs. And for me, one of the beautiful, I think of motivational interviewing as a spiritual practice. It's, it's a way of letting go of, of my way of seeing the world and entering into the worldview of the other person. I was doing a training here in Southern West Virginia, and, and uh, I'm not from West Virginia. I don't have that kind of an accent or dialect. Uh, but one of the people in Southern West Virginia, uh, when I was talking about interviewing, she thought I was saying interviewing with an E instead of an I, and uh, interviewing. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's brilliant, because that really is what you're doing. You're entering into the world of another person. And it takes a lot. You all know, and the folks that are, are motivational interviewing trainers know that, that one of the first hurdles to learning motivational interviewing is to resist the fix, to get out of your own ego, to get out of your own mindset and kind of submit yourself to the worldview of the other person. And then it, lo and behold, it turns out that's more effective, which is really a happy coincidence. It's a lucky accident that compassion has a better effect than having an intervention approach. Sometimes when I'm teaching with folks who have uh, Christian backgrounds, there's a story from uh, about Jesus. And uh, I, I can't say he's the founder of the Christian tradition because he wasn't Christian. He was Jewish. Uh, he was a Jewish mystic in, in my mind. You know, but John the Baptist, who's his cousin, is also a spiritual mystic at, at the time. And uh, there's, one of the, there's a story in one of the texts that says, uh, you know, John the Baptist's disciples were coming to him and they were kind of worried because Jesus was moving into their territory. And it's like, there's not enough room here for two, two mystics in the same, uh, the same county. And uh, John the Baptist says this beautiful thing. He says, you see that guy over there? I have to decrease so he can increase. And I think this is the, for me, this is part of the, the, the spiritual practice of MI. I, when I'm talking with a client, I have to decrease so that the client can increase. 
and I, I think the the empathy that we give, the uh, the ors, the, uh, the especially the reflecting, the open ended question, these are all ways of decreasing my ego, so that so that we can more fully be there with the other person, so that they can increase, so that their ideas, you know, are the primary thing going on. What they hear themselves say is the primary vehicle of how this uh, Jedi mind trick works. It's a wonderfully simple idea and way of thinking about the work that many of us do the the idea of making yourself smaller or decreasing yourself i'm sure steve rolnick would appreciate that as he's often advocating for simple 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 ways of thinking and, mm. and writing but uh yeah just thinking about clients coming into an office or on an inpatient unit or in the emergency department, they're probably already feeling so small in many ways. And, you know, and maybe a reminder for us practitioners who may be feeling rather, you know, big and important with our, you know, diplomas up on the wall and, and all the like, and, um, you know, a really wonderful reminder of, of how to balance that out and maybe tilt the, the balance to where the clients have a greater presence than, than we do as, as the practitioners. It's one of these great paradoxes of, of living, it seems to me, and, and, and almost every religious tradition has these paradoxes. When I was in college, I, I did a, an independent study on uh, Japanese haikus, which frequently have juxtaposition of things. And, and you hear it in the, the teachings of Jesus and Rumi and the other uh, spiritual masters. You know, the first will be last and the last will be first. These are paradoxical, you know, in order to live, you have to die, right? So you have to surrender something in order, you have to let go of something in order to get something. This cycle of giving and receiving, that's more blessed to give than to receive. It's uh, all of these sort of paradoxical just juxtapositions, right? So so what you're saying, Sebastian, is right. You. You, you go, you get all these trainings, you get all these diplomas, and then you have to forget it all and just be in the conversation with somebody. And, you know, one of the, the challenges that, you know, Steve and Bill identified is this thing called the expert trap. And there again is, you know, my ego feeling big. And so, so how do I go back to a, a beginner's mind, a, a Buddha mind and, uh, forget everything that I just learned. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's a tall ask. It takes a, it's fair to say it takes spiritual maturity, but it, it, it certainly takes a, an amount of faith to let go of your expertise, to trust that the conversation will unfold in just the right way. And that, that, whatever, that, your, that the client's expertise is more important than your expertise. Uh, I love this saying that we have, you know, I, I'm an expert. I may be an expert in how other people have done this, but only you're an expert in how you're going to do it. Yeah, it's quite the ask for us as practitioners and professionals to, as, as you've identified, to work really hard, to be in a position where I am now, in a, now sharing a room with you and, and then to go, but what do you think? And yeah. how do you, th what do you, what do you want to do about that? Yeah. And I wondered what helped you achieve that? You know, what, if, if we were thinking about disciplines or exercises that people are listening and thinking, okay, how, how do I practice in the given I shall receive? Mm. Um, mm. What are, what are some of the disciplines you might invite people to consider? Well, 
Um, yeah, you're inviting me to go some places I, I didn't think about. Um, well, certainly ORS is a discipline. They, uh, you know, open-ended questions, reflection. It, reflecting is such a discipline. Giving empathy is such a discipline. It really requires bracketing my own agenda, my own ego. I, for me personally, Glenn, I think it was when, when I started to get involved in 12 steps, um, not just professionally, but personally, and sort of more more of my story when I was in my 30s, I, I didn't really realize that my dad was an alcoholic and until I was uh, 33 or so. I just thought that that's the way everybody did it. And then um, I, I was doing a genogram and uh, I was interviewing my mother and all of a sudden things that she was saying sounded so familiar to the genograms of my clients who had alcoholic parents. And, and eventually I said, you know, mom, do, do you think dad had a drinking problem? She said, well, I, I, I guess he did. You know, we were both in, you know, you know we, we, we hadn't really named it. And then, you know, going to workshops and reading, and uh, I came across this, uh, this statistic that if your father, for, as a male, if your father and, and both your grandfathers are alcoholic, which all of mine were, the likelihood uh, of, uh, of you, um, you, you know, developing a problem is pretty high. And uh, I, that hit me right between the eyes and I stopped drinking. Uh, I was definitely on the road. So uh, towards having a problem, if I didn't have it already, but I, I wasn't physically ad addicted enough so that I had to go through detox. But you know, I, I stopped. I was what we call a dry drunk. Um, I was, uh, I had stopped drinking, but I was still thinking <laughs> like, uh, like someone with, uh, with an alcohol problem would. And then um, after about four years of struggling and suffering with that, I started going to 12-step meetings. And uh, that whole idea of surrender, you know, the, um, the first three steps of 12 steps or Alcoholics Anonymous, in my case, were really quite profound. Uh, and and they, are, uh, they are the steps of surrender, you know, saying that I, I have a problem and I'm powerless here. You know, I've hit the wall enough and I'm not getting through this wall. It's the wall is beating me and, um, and I'm suffering. And um, I, I would like to connect this, if that's okay, to... Um, did Bill and Steve both write Quantum Change or was it just Bill? Do, do either of you know that? Um, I think it's just Bill. I, I, it's my hunch. That, that would be my hunch as well. You know, there's a whole chapter on, on religious experience and, well, more importantly, spiritual experience related to making significant changes and these, you know, what, what Bill calls quantum changes where you just... You, you have this moment where, you know, you turn your life in a completely different direction. Sometimes I think about the prodigal son story, and I don't think that's the best metaphor that we have for change. I, I think our society, unfortunately, has this idea that you have to hit bottom, like in the prodigal son story, in order for a change to happen. And we know that that's not true from the research. But, and at the same time, certain people do hit bottom. And it's this beautiful moment when the, the prodigal son is, you know, has lost everything. If you're not familiar with the story, this family, there are two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, and uh, 
the, the younger brother decides he wants to uh, go out on his own. He asks his father for his inheritance. And for some reason, the father gives it to him. I don't know why, but he uh, takes the money and he spends it on uh, loose living and fast cars. And uh, of course, winds up blowing the whole thing. Uh, no more cars, no more friends. And he winds up homeless and really suffering. And there's this beautiful moment in, in some of the translations of the text. This is a story that Jesus, uh, the Jewish mystic, tells. There's this beautiful moment in the text that says, and then he came to himself. And then he, he goes right into a plan, which is, I'll go back to my dad's house and see if I can be a servant there, because at least then I won't starve. And I think this prodigal moment, this moment when he comes to himself, I think this is what what we're kind of trying to do in a way in a conversation in the prodigal son story. He's by himself and he's having a conversation within himself. There isn't a, a, a person there he's com- conversing with. But I think of when I'm in these conversations, I, I think, you know, I, I'm just trying to be a catalyst for the kind of coming to himself that the prodigal son experiences. So it's a long way around I, I, your question, Glenn, I, I think. But I, I think there's something about surrender. There's something about trying something that works for a while, and then it stops working. And then, but I don't want to give it up, and so I start to suffer. Uh, you know, like drugs work for a while. You can numb yourself out. You, you can feel good. You know, they feel wonderful. That's why they're, that's why they're addicted, addictive. You know, it, it's, it's when the suffering catches up and the, and the, the, the seesaw balance changes. So now the cost is, is higher than the benefit. And some people probably jump right away. They jump out of the boiling, the boiling pot. The frog jumps out of the, joy, the boiling pot before it succumbs. Um, but others just stay there and languish. And having a conversation with that person and helping them think about what it is that's happening and is this what you want for your life and the, these coming to yourself moments. I think there's something really, I, knew, I would have used to have used the word sacred, but these days I think everything is sacred. So I, I don't want to say those moments are any more sacred or special than any other moments, but there's something that happens there that is definitely special. In the Quantum Change book, in the research that, that Bill did, he found that, that, that it was, I, I have the, the, the quote here, he, he found that people, when they were going through this, frequently uh, some kind of prayer would be involved. And these weren't people that were especially religious. These were people that were desperate. And they were reaching out to something, to anything that might help them. What did he that as they were doing this study, they, they kept finding prayer separate from uh, religion. So, so religion's the institution and spirituality or prayer would be a spiritual practice. Here, here's the quote. About one third of our quantum changers were praying when it happened, when, when the change, when the, when the catalyst for their change came, came upon them. Sometimes it was the first prayer they had offered in many years or ever. Just as an aside, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust here in the United States did a study of American religion. This is the study that, that determined that the nuns were growing, and by the nuns they didn't mean the cloistered religious uh, Catholics. 
what they meant was people that said they had no religious uh, background or tradition whatsoever. I think about 25% or 20% of those studied said that they were either agnostic or atheist. And then there was a question, and I, and I talked with the person who did the research, and she was surprised by this, this finding, and they weren't expecting it. There was a question, do you pray, and if you pray, how often? And she said, over 30% of the people that said they were atheists prayed on a regular basis. It sort of blew the categories of what it, they, 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 they weren't anticipating that. They just figured, well, if you're atheist, of course you don't pray. But it turns out, so here, and, and this is the quote, quote again from quantum, uh, quantum Change from Bill Miller, about a third of our quantum changers were praying when it happened, sometimes the first prayer they'd offered in many years or ever. Prayer was, in fact, the single most common act preceding common quantum change. Of all the things that they studied that people were doing right before they made a spontaneous or a big change in their life, prayer was the single most common act preceding that change. All right, I'm going to take a breath and see, see what in all of that might be interesting for us to follow. Well, and many, many options, of course, with, with the stories that you shared and, and some of your perspectives there. One thing that I've often wondered about in the context of I'll just let's just use the phrase pastoral care. It's, I guess, you know, directly relevant to your your profession and the work that you do. And is, well, if I can back up, anybody who's in a helping position has inherent threats to being able to have that really open, autonomy supportive mindset. You know, um, whether it's statistical information we have about the predictors of X, Y, or Z diseases. Well, this is information that we have that could unwittingly or sometimes wittingly impose on a client or a patient to say, you know what, you need to do X, Y, or Z, right? So any helper would have some of that. You know, a probation officer might have, you know, if you keep doing X, Y, or Z, the judge is going to do A, B, and C to you. From a pastoral care perspective, I'm, and, and you certainly correct me if I'm wrong, I would imagine that a threat to being autonomy supportive in the way that we strive for in motivational interviewing is an interpretation of, of a religious text, or even, you know, some of the information you just shared there about quantum change, that how prayer seems to be so central to so many people's perspectives in, in their experiences with change. So I, I guess I'm wondering if if you could offer some some insight into how your senses of the field of pastoral care mm. how how they like use religion or spirituality or faith whatever word fits best but doing so in a way that it is still autonomy supportive or perhaps even sort of neutral and in the background where it doesn't even come into the conversation if if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And, and I appreciate the question, especially in our current climate culturally. So, so just to go back, I'm a child of the 60s. You know, I grew up with British rock and uh, marijuana and, uh, you know, Timothy Leary and Baba Ram Dass. So, um, you know, spirituality slash mysticism 
you know, was an important part of, of my sense of the world. And, uh, you know, I, I was reading William James' variety of religious experiences as a kid and uh, Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception. You, you may know the, the, the rock group, The Doors, that they named their band after that book. Just the idea that there are different ways of perceiving the world. And, you know, if you're in a, the, the experience of, of a mystical, uh, what we might call a mystical nature, a, a sense of openness, a sense of the oneness of the world. It, it's so interesting to me that, you know, all of the things that are happening right now with microdosing uh, psychedelics and the, the therapeutic benefit of, being, of stepping out of yourself and having a whole different perspective of the world. There are many ways to, to do that. So for me, Sebastian, there's a clear distinction for me between religion, which is, I think, the institution, the institution that usually is derived from some kind of a spiritual source and then gets institutionalized, by which I mean the institution seeks to preserve itself and frequently then loses the spiritual message that was the original impetus of the founder. And this seems to be a process of just about every religious tradition there is. I was shocked a, a few years ago when I heard about the, this group, I forget what country it is, they, they were Buddhist terrorists. And I thought, Buddhist terrorists, what, what the heck is going on here? You know, because I, I just didn't think of Buddhism as, you know, that you could claim, you know, violence as one of the ways of promoting your religion. But I, and that's why I sort of go back to this idea of chaplaincy. You know, as a chaplain, you're visiting everybody in the hospital and you are a curious about how are they thinking about their illness? How are they how are they thinking about what will support their health? Um, do they pray? If they do pray, how do they pray? Because um, even among in the Christian tradition, there are as many ways of praying as there are people. And do they find their prayers helpful to them? You know, religion isn't always a support to people's health. Sometimes it's part of what keeps them stuck. And so, you know, can we look at that? Can we look at whether what you're doing is serving you uh, and, and is it working for you? So I, I, th I wonder if that distinction between what I would say spirituality, which is an appreciation of a bigger perspective, an appreciation that there may be more going on here than, than uh, we know, or, or, or simply an appreciation that the world is bigger than we think it is, and that uh, you know the things that I'm so sure of probably are a little bit wrong, if not really wrong, and that that's part of the wonder of it. You know, my experience, and I'd be interested in hearing what, what you all think, um, my experience with these motivational interviewing conversations is that half of what happens doesn't happen in the session. It happens in between sessions, or it happens after the session, and they go out, and in the parking lot, they run into somebody, or something happens in the parking lot that solidifies something that we were just kind of talking about and it was kind of vague and then all of a sudden something comes together or somebody will say you know i was thinking about you know that we started off the session i was thinking about what we were talking about last night and, and then this thing happened 
these things that can't be predicted or, or planned, what, what Carl Jung, you know, called synchronicity. Uh, it's not just a great song by the police, but it's a, you know, synchronicity is the idea of what we call meaningful coincidences. Now, maybe we're bringing the meaning into that. Okay, so that's what we do. That, that's what human beings do. But people, people make sense of their lives in different ways. And, and these, these meaningful coincidences uh, wind up being very important sometimes to, you know, help people make changes. So, so for me, Sebastian, it's kind of like, I think of religion as a cultural aspect. I'm not promoting or, or trying to defend one religion or another. It's, it's like being a sex therapist. You have to kind of get used to having these conversations about very, very private things in a, I don't, I don't know if detached is the right word, but, you know, in a sort of objective way and kind of think about what is the function of, of how you're thinking about the world and is that, is, is it serving you? Is it helping you to, uh, now I'm compassion-based, so I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm interested in my clients being more loving towards themselves and being more loving towards other people. That's kind of my, my bag. <laughs> not a, that's not everybody's bag. I mean, I, I'm sure there, there, there are some clients who aren't interested in that as a goal, um, but most folks feel like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Am I answering your question, Sebastian? Because uh, I'm. It, it's important in the United States. I, I, I know, and, and sometimes people are told in their work settings, you're not allowed to talk about religion because of our funding. You know, is what you know. We have federal funding, so you can't. Well, I think that's a huge misunderstanding and disservice. That would be like saying you can't talk about your race or you can't talk about your gender. Like this is something that, that that's a part of people's lives, and to leave it to, I, I I just feel like it's an obligation I have to be to be able to have to be neutral and facilitative about whether how people think about this and whether it's working for them. But I know no. that it's a big ask. It's not something that everybody can pull off, especially in our current climate. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely is helpful. You know, even just that idea of being curious with another person about how they think about, in your example, of being in the hospital and suffering an illness of some kind, just sitting down with that person, really fundamentally human being to human being and having some hmm. just really sort of basic foundational listening skills, right, that you bring to the table. Um, but then one of the entry points into a more spiritual conversation isn't about, you know, a particular chapter and verse in the Bible, but it's about being curious with the other person about their views on what else is out there, about what what else is beyond our world or, or a deeper power, as you mentioned earlier. And, you know, I imagine those conversations can go in all kinds of directions. It could be somebody who is saying, you know, I don't know, I'm not really much of a spiritual person and I don't believe in, in all that. I'm, I just want to get better. Like, okay, you could probably respond to that in certain ways. And if somebody wants to hold your hand and say a prayer, that that's part of the work that you do too, in a yeah. way that perhaps I wouldn't do as a clinical psychologist who doesn't practice pastoral counseling per se. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I can give you a specific example, they, exactly that moment. So 
in a session or, or in a hospital visit, let's say, I, I might say, you know, is, is prayer, and do you see prayer as an important part of your healing? And the, the, the person might say yes, they might say no, they, they might say maybe. You know, a lot of people have been hit over the head with religion. And so when they say maybe, it's like, okay, you know, they're, they're kind of wondering, are you a cringy chaplain? <laughs> you know, or are you, are you going to help facilitate? You know, are you trying, going to try to lay something on me here? Or are you going to, uh, you know, walk with me? And so if I were to say, you know, um, would you like to pray? Uh, if the person says yes, I don't launch into a prayer. I say, how would you like to do it? How would you like this prayer to happen? You know, and here's, and here's exactly you know, this moment that we have in motivational interviewing around the expert trap. It's very tempting for, for some people to feel like they, okay, I'm, I'm an expert in praying, you know, rather than I'm an expert in how to have a conversation with you about what prayer means to you and how do you practice this and, and how do you see it working? And I'm here to, to, you know, would you like me to listen to the prayer that you say? Would you like me to, to say some things? And, and if they say, oh, I want you to say some things, I say, okay, what do you want me to say? So it's an evocative, you know, I'm using open-ended questions. You know, I, I, it's an evocative prayer. And I'll tell you, Sebastian, um, it's really interesting when I have these conversations and then they tell me what they want me to say in the prayer that we're about to have. By the time the person's done, I kind of look at them and I say, I, th I think we just, <laughs> I think we just had the prayer that you wanted to have, right? I don't, I mean, I can say back what you want to say. And sometimes, you know, there are some folks who, you know, because of whatever, you, you know, they see a religious professional as some kind of a media mediator, you know, and, and in a desperate moment, um, that feels very important to them. But for the most part, I'd much rather be flat. You know, we're just two people trying to figure this out. Yeah. One of the things that is so important is the faith you're describing is the faith that the practitioner has in the other person. Yes. And that, yeah. that, yeah. that, that you're acting as much in our cases, it sounds like almost like a proxy for that healthy inner self. Until hmm. I, I'm going to be kind, loving, understanding, forgiving, accept and accepting of you, until you can integrate that with yourself, so that when you do have struggles in the future, that internal dialogue is probably going to be much, much more profound or much more supportive of yourself. And that that as as social creatures, we need each other. We need each other to to grow and expand, and that the surrendering that you have been describing is, you know, what I'm I, I actually get bigger myself when I try to stop ruling the world. <laughs> when I start trying to impose my agenda on the world, yeah. I start to experience much more of the world, including the wonders and the beauties of other people and the yeah. geniuses that they bring. And then into the the nature of the of of the experience as well, and so much of that is about the mindset and perspective yeah. that you've described. And again, I go back to something that Steve Ronick would talk about. He would very often talk about the spirit of MI being not just a mindset, but a heart set that the practitioner mm. practices. Mm. And mm. it's back to that: Can I? Who who is it I'm seeing when I'm seeing you? And what is it, what's my role and perspective when I'm 
supporting you. And can I can I go off of that? Sure, Glenn? please. Yeah. The, the, this word faith is is such a great word. You know, it, it, it's it's faith meaning trust versus faith meaning a set of beliefs. In the United States, especially in Protestantism, faith has come to mean a you know do you have do you have faith meaning do you believe this set of beliefs this this written set of dogma rather than faith meaning trust and 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 I love the way you're using the word there that that when we're having this MI kind of conversation we we we're trusting that the client has within them some. I don't know what the right metaphor is. I'm sure there are a thousand different metaphors, some kind of internal compass, some kind of um, light within them, uh, some, something within them that if we, and, and here's where I, I go to Socrates, you know, Socrates is evoking this original word of education to draw out of the person, like you're drawing water out of a well with your hand, you know, you're drawing out of them some deep inner wisdom, or you're creating the conditions for that inner wisdom to bubble up. And it might not happen in the session. And I, I think many of us have had who, who practice semi in a clinical setting. You know, I'm in a small enough town, so I run into former clients, and I might have only met with them one time. I don't, I might not even remember them and they'll say, oh my gosh, you know, that, that meant so much to me and they took it and they ran with it. And I mean, it's really, it's an amazing world. Um, there's a, there's a poem by Rumi, uh, the, the Sufi mystic, it's a, it's a long and detailed poem, but, but basically the, the punchline is this world isn't anything the way I thought it was. The world is continuously unveiling these surprises and uh you know especially around things that we're so quote certain about i love these ted talks around confidence and certainty and the the idea that you know the the, the closer to the nobel prize that you get the more you realize you don't know <laughs> you, you don't know half of what you thought you knew and i think it's a real openness to to what can happen in the conversation and then after the conversation and i think this is kind of a surrender prayer and and you know here in in west virginia as i said we're, we're losing four people a day and it's very hard to let go and trust that it's going to be okay i i sort of trust it's going to be okay for everybody whether they die of an overdose today or not i trust it's going to be okay for everybody because i don't know how to let go without trusting that it somehow is going to work out. In the Islamic faith, they have this beautiful metaphor that when you die, you go and you, you, you're like in a great hall, and you're standing in front of this wall, and on the wall are all the pages of the Book of Life. And you get to stand in front of this wall for as long as you want until you're satisfied. And then you, when you're satisfied, then you go on to the next thing, which I forget what the next thing is. You, you, maybe you're, you're I, I'm not quite sure what it is. But I was talking with one of my, my uh, Muslim teachers about this. And, and, and I said, well, why are these pages on the wall? You know, and, and he said, well, if they're in a book, then some of the pages would be hidden and covered. 
you know, because you can only see one page at a time. But when the pages are all on the wall, you can see how everything is related to everything else. And I think for me, this is this is the most beautiful image that, that if you could see the whole thing, you could see how every little thing is related. And you can stand there until the, the, the tradition says you, you, you're, you, you're there for a thousand years, which metaphorically means you're there until you're satisfied, until every question you have is answered, until you see how everything is connected to everything else. So I, I feel like I don't take anything for granted with with this, because anything can be used as a catalyst for someone making a decision in their life that that brings them closer to themselves and in a more compassionate way. So I, I was going off of your word faith there, I, uh, and, and this idea of trust, uh, trusting that it, for me, it's not just trusting that the person has it within them. Because people do make decisions that, that bring more suffering into their life. For sure they do. But trusting, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a capital T trust. It's trusting not only that, that the person has the answer within them, but that the universe is holding the whole thing as well. That there's a wisdom to how the, this whole thing is interrelated. And uh, as I said, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I just choose to believe it because... I don't know how I could let go of some of the circumstances that I find myself in if I didn't have that trust. Does that make sense? Or what, what sense are you making of it? Glenn, why don't you take that one? I have another question separate of that. But Well, what, what comes up for me again is just, you know, we're really, we're really exploring the, the foundational efforts that we have make, been making as human beings ever mm-hmm. since we began to think about what's this all about and mm-hmm. um, recognizing that again back to mindset I can have a I can have a positive mindset or I can have a negative mindset or I can have a neutral mindset but whatever mm-hmm. mindset I have is going to influence what it is I perceive and whatever evidence I gather in to support my way of thinking and mm-hmm. I guess it's even that idea that there's there's things I can do that can bring more pain into my life. There's things I can do that can bring more suffering into my life. But again, what you're describing is is that what's true about good helping and what's true about good motivational living is that I, as a practitioner, begin the conversation with the belief that that can change for you. Hmm. And that, that I create a space where no matter what it is that's going on for you, change is possible and mm. I don't know what that will eventually look like for you but what I'm prepared to do first of all is I'm prepared to step into that space with you knowing mm. that there is a lot of pain and suffering and that gift that we are offering to another person which is I'm not coming in here to pull you out of this pain I'm not standing on the sidelines to pull you out of this pain but if it, with your permission I'd like to come into this place where you're experiencing this pain so I can better understand it and then explore with you what do you want to happen? Mm-hmm. And that that I as a practitioner, the, the discipline that I need to maintain is knowing I'm asking people's permission to step into really, really painful places, really uh, lots of white heat. So I have mm-hmm. to remember the impact that that has on me and also to remember how to get back out of that place so that I don't get caught up 
and catch these pathologies. I don't get, I don't, I don't become sick while I'm looking after other people. Mm. And, yeah. um, and I think that's where the discipline of connection with the, the community aspect of humanity and good helping comes from. Mm. Um, and it mm. sounds like that's part of what you're exploring in that having teachers in your life. And the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn. And it's that it's that coming to peace with that going, right, I am small in this big picture, but I'm in the picture, realizing that I am a small dot and a very, very small dot. But without yeah. me in this dot, everything else has changed too. Um, yeah. And being satisfied with, with that small but significant contribution. Yeah, I appreciate that, Glenn. And I, I sometimes begin my workshop showing that that photograph of the Earth from the moon, the uh, Apollo 11 guys. Uh, all of humanity is in that picture except the person taking the photograph. And, and there was a photograph. It was a, you know, it wasn't a digital, it wasn't their phone. It was a, it was a selfie. <laughs> it's a selfie of everybody. And, uh, you know, everyone you've ever known, everyone you've ever loved, everyone you've ever lost is in that photograph, especially if you were alive at the time, uh, like the three of us probably were. But symbolically, everyone is in that photograph. And, and then we see these, photo, these pictures from the Hubble telescope. <laughs> I, I saw one the other day on the Internet. It was just like, we are so small, you know, the, the world is so big. There's so much that, that, that's beyond us. It's just amazing. Where, <laughs> uh, and at the same time, when we're suffering, that's, that's all there is to, to the world. You, you know, when, when you're losing, when you're suffering, when you're, when you're grieving, when you're in love, we're, we're small and, and we're big at the same time. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it actually reminds me of my brother-in-law once said to me, I think it's not still true, but until very recently, the idea was if you give everyone on earth one square metre of land each, everyone on earth would fit in County Cork in Ireland. <laughs> and it's like, like when I first heard that, I was like, that's no way. But when you sit down, you do the maths, it's true. And it just wow. makes you appreciate just how... How small we are, even on Earth. Yeah. How much space we actually do take up, but how yeah. much power and control we want to have, and mm. uh, how challenging mm. and, and and difficult it comes when we start thinking that one religion is better than another. And I grew up in Northern Ireland, so so where religion, religion mm. was was more of a political identity and a tribal uh, mm. identification, which which resulted in conflict. So mm. you know two Christian sects were killing each other because I believed that body and blood of Christ was was, an, was on the altar when when the priest blessed it and the crowd were going, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> right. right, so let's go to war over that. So, yeah. But, yeah. Seb, you have, you have another question. I'm conscious of our time and I want, I want, this, yeah. want this to start thinking about that. Yeah. Um, so my question is about uh, ambivalence, I suppose. So ambivalence, as many know, but perhaps some don't, I mean, it's sort of at the core, at the, the early beginnings of motivational interviewing, the, the experience of somebody, and, and in particular when Bill was writing about it, somebody who was struggling with their drinking, that the idea that, um, you know, most people could make a case to keep drinking and could also make a case to not drink. And that, that struggle with, should I 
do this or should I not do this? That that's inherent in a lot of the changes that human beings are struggling with. And, and certainly in the conversations that we have, ambivalence is, and therefore it kind of lent, it, it led to the development of key phrases in MI like change talk and sustain talk and that we're, you know, we're, we're listening for people's reasons to change and we're reflecting them and, and all that sort of thing. I'm wondering about ambivalence in the context of spirituality and, you know, because what we've been talking about so far from a practical standpoint seems to be using spirituality, religion, faith, again, any word that fits as one vehicle to help someone go through a process or go through change. I'm, I'm wondering about someone's ambivalence about their spirituality mm. and how those conversations might go, how they might be similar or different than conversations about drinking or smoking or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question, Sebastian. Uh, yeah. And, and one, one example would be around the idea of forgiveness. Uh, every religious tradition, I, I, I think, or, or most, you know, has some kind of way of reconciling with another person after, after a disruption. And, you know, if we think about forgiveness, there's a lot of ambivalence around forgiveness, meaning, do I want to forgive this person? You, you know, what are the pros and what are the cons? The books I read on forgiveness, they, forgiveness has been a well-researched subject. And, uh, you know, the problem isn't so much how to do it, although people will say, I don't know how to forgive. But actually, the, the bigger question is, do you want to? Am I willing to forgive? Or am I willing to ask this person for forgiveness? Am I willing to kind of trust that something good or different might come out of it? So, yeah, I think there are, it's just like basically anything else, especially in the internal world. You know, do I want to get in touch with my tender side? Do I want to get in touch with my anger? Um, well, I don't know. I'm afraid I might get out of control with it. I see ambivalence uh, in, in the internal world as, I mean, that's kind of my bread and butter. I'm, I'm mostly helping people sort through ambivalent relationships with what's going on inside them, but, um, or even praying, you know, like I, I love, uh, we, we used to have a questionnaire when, when new clients would come, would you like prayer to be part of your session? It was yes, no, and maybe. And the folks that answered maybe were the most interesting conversations at all, because usually they had been hurt by religion or, or by people praying at them rather than, uh, or for them, rather than with them. Yeah, so I, I think it's very similar. It's another human experience that, that we have mixed feelings about. And I, I guess we can probably say that it's probably a well-researched thing. The, the forgiveness is, is probably good for you it's probably good for other people it's good for humanity to not i i mean versus revenge you know versus exacting you know your your revenge on someone um it's a pro-social spiritual practice and there's a lot of ambivalence around it and you we just think about <laughs> Whenever, whenever someone's listening to this podcast i bet that there's a crisis going on in the world around folks that are unwilling to let go of some hurt or slight or tragedy or serious breach of uh, 
you know, murder, terrorism, war. How do we resolve these things? And are we willing to? So I, I think, yeah, the, this is these kind of conversations. Um, are you willing to forgive yourself? I know a lot of people, you, you too, you guys probably do too, who use being hard on themselves as a way to motivate themselves. You know, do you want to stop being so hard? Well, I don't, I don't know if I want to stop. I don't know if I'd get out of bed if I wasn't hard on myself. Uh, you know, what, what other reason would I have to, to, to try to be the best I can be? Well, there, there are actually other reasons that might be interesting to you, but um, it sounds like those don't occur to you right now. And so maybe you don't want to give up being hard on yourself, or maybe you don't want to give up your depression. Maybe you don't want to give up your resentment towards this person who wronged you 20 years ago, or your father who died 30 years ago. I, I think there's a lot of ambivalence around when to hold on and when to let go. It, it, it goes to the serenity prayer. You know, holding on and letting go is, is one of the, the most difficult challenges that, that we face as human beings, and, and we're, we're wrestling with it or dancing with it all the time. Yeah, the letting go is, a, is quite a powerful uh, metaphor, that idea of holding on literally for dear life. And if I let go, what's underneath me? What's the safety net? What's what's beneath this cloud I'm holding myself above? And again, it who comes am back I going to be if I if I let go of? Yes. Who am I going to be if I let go of my anger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, these are really good questions for us to be reflecting mm. back to the people that were mm. supporting us. You know, what are your concerns of who you might become? Who is it you don't want to become? And mm. and what other ways might you be? And and how can you test so that Whatever decision you make is the right decision for you. But Sky, listen, it's been fabulous. And, and one of the things we often ask our guests is, you know, what, what else is happening for you at the minute that might be capturing your attention, whether it's work-related or something outside of work? What's, what's happening? Well, Glenn, you and I have, have run down the rabbit hole of, of artificial intelligence several times already, and I, I think that's the thing that's captured me the most um, is uh, particularly in terms of uh, journaling and mental health and uh, just the way the, this uh, open AI and chat GTPT are, are developing a skillfulness in terms of uh, giving empathy as strange as that sounds, uh, and certainly asking open-ended questions and facilitating people thinking more deeply about themselves. Um, that's what excites me these days is practicing those kinds of things, but, but that, that would, <laughs> that's another two hours, I, I, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that excites me. Um, I, I personally, I'm uh, I'm trying to practice more creativity in my life, uh, writing more. I've have started a, a blog where I'm I'm kind of rolling out these different videos and talking about how they can be used, um, and uh, you know, kind of inviting people to give different reflections on the the videos and their use, and just kind of what it says about conversation and how conversations go well and don't go well. Mm, wow. So interesting. It, the image of you going from one higher power to a different higher power mm. came to mind as you're playing around with AI. Yeah. So, uh, well, lots of interesting um, developments to come there, Sky, and, and maybe for all of us. Um, Sky, another question we ask our guests is if 
if our listeners, if anybody is interested in reaching out to you to ask you questions or to hear more about some of the ideas that you shared today, uh, would you be willing? And if so, how could they contact you? Yeah, I'd be glad glad to. Uh, Skykirshner at gmail.com, S-K-Y-K-E-R-S-H-N-E-R. And I have a website, which is uh, wv-mi.com. And I, I'd be glad to uh, respond to, if folks want to reach out. We, we do. Uh, I do two free practice groups a week on Mondays and Fridays, Eastern Standard Time uh, here in the United States. And they're absolutely free. And people come from all over uh, the country and all over the world uh, to practice. And we just kind of hang out with each other. So you'd be welcome to come to that as well if you'd like. And uh, on my website is also the, the link to the blog where I, I write more about this idea of the interface between uh, spirituality, MI, and, uh, and fear of feelings. Uh, it's another thing I'm interested in. And certainly we'll include all of those links on the, the blurb Great, that, thank that you. goes along with the, the, the website. And just to remind people, if, if you want to get in touch with myself and Seb or the podcast, our Twitter is at Change Talking. Seb is S G K F R O M N C, and I'm at Glenn Hines. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Our Facebook is Talking to Change, and email for any questions or information on training is podcast.glennhines.com. Sky, thank you so much for, for joining us and for sharing all of your uh, your wisdom in these various areas. We really appreciate it. Well, I I, I hope it gets received well and. I appreciate the invitation. It, it helped me to articulate a bunch of things that I hadn't really put together. So uh, I, I really, really appreciate your your curiosity and interest in, in the, the great questions you asked. So thank you for that. Maybe it's appropriate to say amen. <laughs>